Well, guys, it is Mother's Day, and what a joyous day that is. Um, I am aware, though, as I say that, that Mother's Day, it's a bit like snow. I don't know if you snow to uh, uh, highway, well, that, that's, that's California. I was about to say highway patrol. You guys don't have highway patrol out here. I did spend some, I am from away. <laughs> but I guess to somebody in law enforcement, they might view a snow as potential accidents, uh, for the little kid, they might think of it as a possible day off from school. For somebody who makes their living plowing snow, it might represent income. But for somebody who desperately needs to get out of their driveway, it just looks like a terrible obstacle to their day. Uh, the idea of an impending snowstorm lands on different hearts and different ears differently. And Mother's Day, I'm aware, is similar. Similar. I think there's a lot of stuff that comes along with that statement, Happy Mother's Day. And for many, it's not necessarily a happy occasion. My, my goal this morning, though, and all of our mornings together, the reason why we gather here in this place is to worship our God. And so our celebration this morning is not of mothers per se, although I do have much to celebrate in my own mother. I am very glad for the mother of my children and I want to celebrate them and honor them. But more than anything, in our time here this morning, we never give space to the adoration of human beings. We are here to worship God. And we're here to encourage mothers in their calling as worshipers of God to interact with their calling as moms in that way. I want to talk about motherhood this morning as a calling. And to help us do that, I want, to, I want to look at a mother that I don't think over my time warming a pew coming up through the church got as much press on Mother's Day as I think she should have. I've heard a lot of Mother's Day sermons about Mary, the mother of Jesus, of course, or Hannah, the mother of Samuel, the prophet, Elizabeth. But I don't know that I've ever heard any Mother's Day sermons. I'm sure they've been given. I just didn't hear them about the, the mother of Samson. <laughs> but it's interesting. She actually does get a lot of attention. We find her story in Judges 13. We know a lot about this mother who is unnamed. Uh, she's identified for us in our Bibles as the wife of Manoah. Why we're told Manoah's name and not hers, I don't know. I can't say. However, she's the wife of Manoah, she's the mother of Samson, and she's who I want us to spend some time with this morning. Judges 13, I'll begin here at verse 1. I'm going to read the entire chapter. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines." Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. 
So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching, and when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, He would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtau. All right, that's a fairly long chapter. Thank you for that. A lot in here I want us to see this morning as it relates to motherhood. It's interesting to me that God chooses to devote a significant amount of time, a whole chapter, to tell us about Samson's parents. And the main character of that chapter is Samson's mom. I think Samson's story is so over-the-top crazy in some ways that in some ways it overshadows these words about the beginning, the origins of Samson. It was to her, not to Manoah, that the angel of the Lord first appeared, and it was to her that he appeared a second time. She was first to receive the promise of this child and the the instructions concerning how he should live. The chapter presents her as possessing, in, in greater measure than her husband, a, a faith. 
She had really did have faith here in greater measure than Manoah, which, by the way, Manoah has a remarkable faith. I like that when Manoah is told by his wife this thing has, that has happened, he prays to God not to confirm what his wife said, but that he would know how to raise the child that she had been told he would have. He has remarkable faith as well. Um, I'm, not, I'm not elevating any, anyone above another. Moms are not inherently better than dads or vice versa. But very often, in my experience, in a couple, you do seem to have one of the two spouses that oftentimes has this faith in greater measure. And, and Manoah's wife has a deeper and more fully formed understanding of God. For example, when Manoah sees the angel of the Lord go up in the smoke from the sacrifice, he becomes instantly and terrifyingly aware that he's been talking with a creature from the unseen realm. And this is terrifying to him. He even thinks that he's seen God. And I suppose that is a possibility. The wording in Hebrew is ambiguous. This could be kind of the big $5 theological word is a theophany, if this is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ or something like that. We're, we're this person is identified to us as an angel of the Lord. So I'll at least just for now operate under the assumption that it's an angel. He sees an angel go up in this way. And he is terrified, thinking he's laid eyes on God, and he believes he's undone, he's going to die. And he says this, and instantly his wife chimes in and says, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands. So the first thing she does is she encourages her husband to rest in the sacrifice that they had made. They had made a burnt offering, so she points him to the sacrifices and the goat was burned up, not us, Manoah. That's what she says, essentially. And then she says, or shown us all these things. She encourages her husbands to rest in the revelation of God, the word of God. And then she says, or now announce to us such, such things as these. So here what she does is she encourages her husband to rest in the sacrifice, in the word of God, and in the promises of God, all in bullet point succession. This is a woman who has a really strong faith and a well-formed understanding of who God is, that he's a promise-keeping God, and that he operates in a way that's for us, not against us. He's not like a genie in a bottle where if you break one of his rules, <laughs> he's going to smite you or something like that. He's saying, look, he accepted our sacrifice. He said wonderful things to us. He made promises to us. And now you think he's going to renege on all of that. That's not who he is. Now, Manoah needed to hear that. And young people, I want you to take a note from this uh, example. Uh, many of us here in this room are at a stage of life where we're, um, we're, we're finding our way and maybe selecting partners for the remainder. And I want you to see, I have experienced this many times where um, I've spoken some bad idea or I'm doing something that's not quite right, and God and the spouse he's given me has spoken truth that was corrective and needed. I think I've been able to do that at times for my spouse as well. Samson does not do this. Uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time with Samson's life here just a little bit later on. Samson does not find for himself a spouse like his dad found, where when his dad <laughs> said something that was not true, that was causing him spiritually to crater and go, uh, go off the path. 
his wife kind of pulls him back into the center of God's will. Samson is going to go find people who encourage his folly, who speak lies to him and drag him outside of God's will. He's going to find a spouse that is going to encourage the worst behavior in him. And so this is really important as you're looking for a potential mate. Uh, I always like to quote that line from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. I don't think he was a Christian of any sort. But he said, love does not consist in gazing into one another's eyes, but in looking outward in the same direction. Uh, one of the most important things you can find in a spouse is somebody who shares your high view of God's word who views as him as central to all, and on which you can found your home in a unified way. This is very important. I want you to see here that the, the home that Samson was born into was one where mom and dad were actively speaking truth to one another and encouraging one another towards what's closest to God's heart. And moms, what a powerful role you play in creating a culture in your home. And this mother certainly has a powerful way of shaping uh, her family. The goal for Christian parents is to transfer their children over time from dependence on them to dependence on the Lord. And uh, Sarah and I, like all Christian parents, we want Christ for our children more than anything. I'm sure you do too. And although the mother of my children loves them fiercely and would sacrifice for her, herself for them, it is not her sacrifice that they will need ultimately. Now, to be sure, the many sacrifices that Christian moms make are important in that they serve as a reflection and a reminder to the child of the sacrifice that Jesus made for them. Christian parenting at its best should be like a living reminder of Jesus in the middle of the home. However, your sacrifices are not enough. They only point to the one sacrifice that is needed above all else. Uh, years ago, I remember when, um, I think it was when Jack was being born. Uh, she, my, I'm sorry, Sarah was pregnant with our third child, Jack. We have six kids. Jack was number three. Uh, we were living in California at the time, and in the morning, it was our ritual that when Bowden and Lucy got up, because being little kids, they get up at like 2 a.m. or some crazy thing like that. <laughs> Uh, I would let Sarah rest because she was making a whole other human being inside of herself, and that's exhausting. So my strategy was I'd take the kids downstairs, and we'd sit in front of our computer on my desk, and I would bring up YouTube videos of animals. And Bowden would say, I want to watch one about alligators. And so we'd watch an alligator video, and then Lucy would be like, I want to watch about butterflies. <laughs> we'd watch butterflies. That was generally how it went. But I remember that Bowden wanted to watch one about mountain lions. And so we typed in mountain lion, and up came this video. The very first video was this video of a mother mountain lion standing between her kitten and a grizzly bear. The grizzly bear was advancing, wanted to eat this kitten, and the mother mountain lion was all teeth and claws, and <laughs> it was intimidating ears were back, her teeth were bared, she was all claws, all teeth, and I was holding the kids, and I kept holding them tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter, until I can't breathe. But you know what? That bear backed down. That bear must have weighed, I don't know, five, six times, I don't even know. It was a lot heavier than the mountain lion, but it wasn't going to tangle with that mama. 
But here's what I want to tell you, Christian mom. I know you have within you the heart of that mountain lion. You'd throw yourself at anything. I know you would. You would absolutely go toe-to-toe against a real-life grizzly bear. But mom, you are no mountain lion. You're not. When the Bible describes you, it says that you're a sheep. And I think as a Christian mom, you've really got to let that settle down deep into your heart. I know you've got the heart of a lion, <laughs> but you are, in fact, a sheep. And I'm, I would be remiss on this Mother's Day if I didn't tell you that the strength of a sheep lies directly in her proximity to the shepherd. This is such an important thing, I think, for Christian moms on mission to know and understand. I know you'd throw yourself on that grenade, but it's not your sacrifice that's needed. Your child needs the sacrifice of Jesus. And the best thing you can do is go towards him because the lambs will follow. Over the years, as our children mature and step out from under our roof, growing less and less dependent on their mom and their dad, Sarah's in my prayers that they would seamlessly grow more and more dependent on God. I pray that as my boys grow into honorable manhood and they become strong and tall, that they would become like a little child in the presence of the Almighty. As they mature, I pray that they would embrace the gospel like a little child. Because that's what's needed. And guys, that's a miracle. That's a miracle if that happens. The act of transferring our children from dependence on us to dependence on God will involve this scary time, the scary season of transition where we'll have to give our children more freedom and pray and trust that they'll use it wisely and not abuse it. And freedom is inherently dangerous. Freedom can be used in self-destructive ways or in ways that hurt others, in ways that hurt you. Freedom can be used to embrace terrible things, terrible ideas, and to commit horrible sins with serious long-lasting consequences or scariest of all, in their freedom, They can reject Christ and eternally walk away from all that they need eternally. Their freedom is a terrifying, scary thing for me, and sometimes I wish I could make every decision for my kids. (laughs) I truly do. That's the dark side of freedom. And so we might wonder why God would allow such a thing as that. And that's because freedom is also wonderful and wonderfully full of potential because it's only in freedom that your child can truly turn to Christ for themselves. I'm willing to bet all you moms who want so much for your child to be with you in church today, I bet you want more for them to want to be in church, even if you couldn't come yourself. That's what you want. And it's their freedom It's their freedom that's so precious and so terrifying. They're free moral agents. They make these choices for themselves. 
And no parent can coerce or browbeat their child into choosing the narrow way. They have to want it and embrace it personally. I wish I could do it for them, but they have to do it themselves. Now, the wife of Manoah, Samson's mom, is a story of encouragement for mothers to continue in their calling of talking to God about their kids and talking to their kids about God, even when their children are wayward and not living in the truth. Uh, This is one of the great things about Samson's story is his mom and dad did their faithful level best. I'm sure they weren't perfect. But at least insofar as the Bible records, I can't find fault with what they did or said. And Samson does not pick up what they were laying down for a long time. And today, Christian parents find themselves in a situation that is very similar to that of Samson's folks. Just like them, you are trying to raise your children to be sturdy followers of Jesus in the midst of a generation that's marked by an incredible spirit of moral confusion. Wickedness abounds, ignorance of, or apathy towards God's word is the norm. And just as in the days of Judges, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. But Samson was blessed by God. He was born into a home where his parents were praying people. They were people who had been shaped by God's word. They were spiritually minded. They earnestly sought God on how to raise their son. That's what Manoah wanted to know, is what am I, how am I supposed to do this? What am I supposed to teach him? They were faithful to raise him up according to God's word. But if you know Samson's story, well, then you know that once Samson was an adult, once he stepped out from under their authority, their roof, things, things went off the rails in spectacular fashion. We all know stories like this. Unfortunately, faithful parenting does not always guarantee faithful children. Perfect circumstances do not guarantee perfect results. I always point this out, especially in counseling scenarios. But where, where were the first wayward children? That was in the, the Garden of Eden, in the perfection of the garden with God himself presiding. That's where the first wayward children happen. If it can happen there, it can happen at the Tate House. It can happen in Washburn, Maine. It can happen in your house. It can happen anywhere. As parents, we try to carve out homes that are a garden of rest, biblical truth, love, and encouragement for our children. But like Adam and Eve, or like Samson, they ultimately are free moral agents who must choose for themselves Will they put their trust in God, or will they reject Him and go it alone? Or will they try to mingle godliness with worldliness, leading to a divided life of lukewarm passions and spiritual compromise? Moms, if you have a child who has strayed from God's best as Samson did, I want you to be encouraged this morning by the faithful example of this mom. After studying Samson's life, we might be tempted to conclude that he must not have been raised very well. After all, and every word of this description of Samson is true. You can read on in Judges 14 and beyond to hear his full story. Samson is a public menace 
who tortures animals. He pays off gambling debts by murdering people for their clothing. He is a sex-crazed, egocentric man with a homicidal temper. He's out of control. He goes from one toxic, ill-fated romantic relationship to another, exploiting people along the way, all to feed his very base appetites. And maybe worst of all, in Judges 14, he actually calls his fiancée a heifer in public. It's true. That was a joke. <laughs> I had to put that in for the people listening online. They're like, they're like, that is very serious. It is. And I wonder, I wonder how often, this is not a joke, How often did Manoah and his wife have to make apologies for their son over those years? How often did people come to Manoah and his wife, and those are the good ones? I think they must have had an awful sense that people were talking about their boy behind their backs. A lot. Boy, he is a mess. What did she do to him growing up that he's like that? I know how people are. I can only imagine that's how people in those towns talked about Samson's mom and dad. What a weirdo. (laughs) I can't believe the stuff he does and the stuff he does to us, all of us. In Judges 15.11, we read how 3,000 men from Judah, fellow Israelites, come to Samson and blamed him for stirring up trouble. They say, what have you done to us, Samson? And how often was the same question put to Manoah and his wife or asked about them behind their backs? Wasn't there something she could do about her boy? (laughs) People probably thought very unkind things about Samson's parents. However, in the final analysis, I think we have to conclude that his folks did their job well Because at the end of Samson's life, after many years of rebellion, prideful rejection of God's truth, we will see that at his lowest moment, he calls out to God. And God restored him and strengthened him again in that moment. Although Samson's parents are not mentioned in that moment, I think it obviously they deserve some credit for being God's means of grace by which a foundation in the truth was established in Samson's life. So that in that moment, he knew who to turn to and to cry out to for deliverance. His mother's prayers followed him into some dark, unsavory places. And I get the impression from the Bible that Samson's parents, and his mom specifically, they did this thing where they talked to their son about God, and they talked to God about their son. And that bore fruit in the end. The fact that Samson was so wild and wayward does not mean that his parents did their job poorly. Insofar as the scriptures indicate, they did their part faithfully, imperfectly again, I'm sure, but faithfully. And even though Samson would seriously stray, we see in the end that the seeds that they had planted in his life bore the fruit of repentance and genuine turning to God in the end. 
They couldn't make decisions for Samson, and heaven knows they tried. Uh, if you read the rest of his story, he comes to them again and again with these ideas, and they confront him over it, and he moves on his own way anyway. But they had imparted to him in his early years and throughout his later years an, an awareness and a knowledge of the one true God and his calling on Samson's life, and that put Samson in a good position at the end of his days to turn back to God and, be, and repent. So mom, be encouraged. Whatever Samson did with his life, his parents did their part, and it bore fruit in the end. I feel like I've already preached a sermon. I'm going to very quickly, though, I want to show you three things in here. You have to see moms before I close it up here this morning. Three things for moms to notice in Judges 13. The first, I want to come back to this idea of what's needed is a miracle. Uh, in verse 3, we're told that the angel said to Samson's mother, Behold, you're barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. So from this, we learn that Samson was chosen by God before he was born or even before he was conceived, and that his birth was miraculously brought about through a reversal of his mom's barrenness. Samson was born of a miracle. Now, in the same way, God chose Israel as a people for his own possession before Abraham and Sarah had even had one baby. And that baby would be born, again, miraculously to a woman in her 90s. God said, Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed, for I have chosen him. God said something very similar to his prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. David in Psalm 139 says, You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. So God said all that about Samson and the nation of Israel, Jeremiah and David, but do you know what? He says the same thing about your children. When a person becomes born again, just like Samson, they're born of a miracle. All Christians are miracle babies. As Christians, we claim to have been born again into God's family, and that didn't happen for a single one of his followers through human effort or striving. God opened the eyes of our heart, just as surely as he opened the barren womb of Samson's mother. He miraculously made us who were dead alive. Like Samson, we've all been born through a miracle. God caused us to be born again out of a barren, dead place. And I think one of the reasons why moms have to see this <laughs> is because what's needed in your child's life is not necessarily a doubling of your efforts. Uh, I've known a lot of moms over the years, and I think very often they are uh, weighed down with a sense that they didn't do all that they could have for their kids. And they just feel uh, this terrible burden, this pressure that I should have done more. If I'd done more, things would be better. And I want you to know, I really want you to see this, that what's needed is a miracle. That's what's needed. And if you think you can mother without prayer, it's like thinking you can do it without God. You're not a miracle worker. You need God to work a miracle in your child's life. 
And so let's see this at the very beginning, that Samson's origins are through a miraculous beginning. I think this is really important to see. Through human effort, we cannot climb our way into the fold of God. John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and will find pasture. It's only through the miraculous means of Jesus as revealed by the Holy Spirit that we can enter into newness of life. This understanding of things, it just destroys all human pretense or boasting. We were not born again because of our wisdom or strength or character, but because God worked a miracle in our hearts. Uh, I have a story to tell from my own marriage. I didn't ask Sarah's permission to tell this story, so here we go. <laughs> we were watching the movie Vivarium. Have you guys ever seen Vivarium? No? Okay, good. It's a great movie. Trust me. Uh, but it's about these people who, it's really hard to explain, but they're abducted by aliens, basically. And they live in a make-believe earth where they have to raise an alien child. And the child is not human, but they're supposed to raise it to be like a human. That's kind of their, it's a weird movie. But this child is never going to be like you or me. It's, it's an alien, and it's weird. And, and we were watching this, and I was just like, oh, this looks impossible. This looks terrible. I would wish death over these poor parents. And Sarah was like, I could raise that baby better. <laughs> <laughs> She is a great mom. Um, but I just think we have this idea sometimes that we can, through sheer dent of hard work and planning and strategy, somehow work a miracle in our children that's only possible through the saving power of the Holy Spirit. And so I just want to release that burden from your shoulders, mom. Uh, you're not meant to bear up underneath the weight of that. You're no miracle worker. You're somebody who is called upon by God to talk to their children about God and to talk to God about your children. Do your level faithful best. Forgive yourself <laughs> for those shortcomings. You're not perfect. You're made of dust. God knows this. Point your children to the one who is perfect. Don't try to lift yourself up as the one who did it all right. Jesus did that. So that's number one, a miracle's what's needed. Settle into that truth. Number two, the second thing I want us to see is that Samson's own separateness began with a command for his mom to live in a holy and separate way. Now, the angel of the Lord said to Samson's mother, therefore be careful not and drink no wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. If you're curious and would like to know more about what a Nazarite vow is, I'm not going to get into that this morning. It's described for you in Numbers 6, 2 through 21. Uh, others besides Samson in the Bible took the Nazarite vow, John the Baptist did. But insofar as the Bible indicates, Samson is the only one who is required to take it for life. Normally, one would only take this kind of vow for a period of time, but God intended for Samson to be consecrated and set apart as a Nazarite from birth until the day of his death. And that word Nazir, from which we get Nazarite, it means consecrated or set apart for God in Hebrew. 
Like much of the Old Testament ceremonial law, the details of the Nazarite vow were largely symbolic. The Bible doesn't indicate that there's anything inherently wrong with such things as drinking wine or cutting your hair or even handling dead bodies. But the purpose of these kinds of vows were meant to outwardly demonstrate an inner separation from the world and devotion to God. This would be similar in some ways to all of the Old Testament dietary laws, which we are no longer required to observe as New Testament believers. Such laws had their purpose in redemptive history to serve again as this outward representation of the separateness of God's people from the surrounding nations. So again, without getting too bogged down in the details of the Nazarite vow, I think all we really need to see this morning is that God wanted Samson to be set apart and consecrated to God for all his days. And that began with a command to his mom to do the same, to model that separateness and holiness herself. Speaking of his people Israel, God says in Leviticus 20, 26, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. And as a people within a people living in the midst of these days that are so much like the days of judges, there is a clear clarion call here to moms and dads, of course, too, to live lives that are separate and holy. Not to say to our kids, do what I say, not what I do, but to live the same kind of, I want to be the kind of man I want Lucy to marry. I want to be the kind of man I want my boys to grow up to be. But more than any of that, I just want to be with God. <laughs> I want to enjoy uninterrupted fellowship with Him. I don't want sin to come in and rob me of joy. And so we're called to be separate. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The problem in Samson's day was that the pagan idolatry that they'd been commanded to wipe out had been instead allowed to flourish in the midst of God's people. So that oftentimes in the period of the judges, we see God's people being shaped in their values, their mode of living, and even in their worship by the surrounding pagan culture rather than by the revealed word of God. And so I think we see something similar in our own days when Barna Research Group finds that a majority of respondents to their surveys indicate that they see no difference at all between how believers and non-believers live. The church is being assimilated into the surrounding culture, I fear. We're assuming room temperature. Now, the evidence of holiness and God's power unto godliness in a Christian life is not that you're perfect, but that you are striving and fighting against the strong downward pull of these days that we're living in. And again, as moms, this goes right to that idea of being a sheep, not a mountain lion. Your kids are going to be safest if you remain in close proximity to the shepherd. That's what's needed. It's no guarantee, but that is what is most helpful to them. And finally, the third last thing I want you to see from these verses is that Samson was born with a mission. His parents raised him with the idea 
that you were created by your God to go out on mission. And I like to think of all those kids down there in junior church right now, we have no idea what they're going to grow up to be. We have no idea what future missionary, what future Christian who's going to live their life like they mean it is right now being shaped right here in the midst of this community. But one thing's for sure, I think kids learn pretty early on what their parents want for them. Uh, by the things that are prioritized and taught and emphasized in the home. And I think it's so important to raise our children with the sense that mom and dad are on mission for Jesus, that we're living for him, we're sold out, that that's the great central treasure of our lives, and we're raising you to seek your joy in that as well. I really believe that most, I, I believe every person in this room, I'm willing to bet, at some point over the course of your life, you were filled with the awesome sense that you were made for something. You were made for some great cause. I'm willing to bet every single last living one of you in this room has been filled with that sense at some point that you were not made, you were not born into this world to service a mortgage to pay your bills, to punch in, punch out, and die someday. Samson was born with a mission. And I believe the greatest joy is found in life in finding that great central cause for your life and living out of it. And I think that his parents were faithful from little all the way up through to remind Samson of his mission. And in the end, he remembered it. Uh, do you remember, I think if you do a study of the life of Samson, you can pay attention to his first words he spoke on the pages of Scripture and his last words. <laughs> his first words that are uttered in the pages of Scripture that we hear from Samson himself are that he sees a Philistine woman and he says he wants her. His last recorded words in the Bible are, let me die with these Philistines. <laughs> I think there's been a miraculous change of his heart. And I have to believe that in part this change from wanting to be like them, with them, joining them, to standing opposed to that, flowed in part out of his parents' prayers, their example, their communication to him of who God is and his calling on his life. And so, parents, I challenge you to live the mission, to communicate the mission, to tell, encourage your children to seek their joy in the pursuit of that. Happy Mother's Day. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, Father, we are all wildly imperfect. And Father, we come around our mothers right now in this time of prayer and just give you thanks for their soft heart for their kids. God, you have given them a courageous heart, a heart overflowing with compassion. And Father, we join with our mothers in praying for a miracle in their children's lives. God, you are the great miracle worker. You are the God who opens the eyes of our hearts to see and believe and trust. And God, we join with our mothers in praying that you would work that miracle in the hearts of their children.
Father, we also pray for our moms that they would live lives that are represent, that, that, that reflect visibly their commitment to holiness. God, that they would love you in front of their children and love you when they're not in front of their children. God, that you would in all sincerity deepen them in their love for righteousness. That they would represent that to their kids. And God, we all mess up. We all blow it. And sometimes our kids have a front row seat to our failures, not just our good example. And so, Father, I pray that they would go to their children and confess sin when it's happened. And use that moment to point them to the one who is perfect and needed most, and that is Jesus. Father, we're so grateful for the cross. We're so grateful that Jesus paid for all of our failures. And God, may we not, in front of our children, lift ourselves up as perfect people, but as people who desperately need a Savior and take every occasion to point our children to the one who is needed. And Father, lastly, I pray, Lord, that you would fill our children with a great sense of your calling on their lives. God, that you would fill them with the knowledge of your will. God, that they would grow up with an awareness that they have been born into a great life cause and that they would find in the cause of your kingdom, in the great commission, God, the great central cause of their life and that their cause, their, their cause is the same as Samson's, which is to free your people out from underneath bondage, slavery, oppression, to deliver people. God, may we go forth from here, not as miracle workers, but as people who trust in the one who works the miracle. Not satisfied, God, in the fact that we've brought a person into the world, but that you want to make them born again. God, please do that miracle. God, help us to live lives in front of our children that are authentic and real and in sincerity, imperfect but sincere, points them towards you and your righteousness. And God, help us to live out the mission in front of our children and invite them to join us in it. We love you and are so grateful for our moms. In Jesus' name, amen.